episode of Moments in Leadership. I want to start out this week by thanking some of the new subscribers and donors at my Supercast level. I have Guadalupe Ramos at the Hot Wash level, uh, Ryan or Rianne Madden. Sorry about that. I actually did try to look up the pronunciation of that and got those two versions. So 50-50 there at the Hot Wash level. Hey, thanks a lot. Really appreciate that. Jason Pecor at the high wa- Hot Wash level. Um, I really appreciate that that kind of support. It really means a lot that people find value in the project. And, and I appreciate the three of you subscribing over the past month. Also have two donors that came in. Rich Gregg, who's a really old friend of mine, artillery officer buddy of mine from way back in the day. And he's still helping uh, create the world's finest artillery leaders down there at Fort Hill, Oklahoma. So thank you so much for your donation. And Patrick McNamara, former 0302 out of 35. He's now out there kicking ass in the wealth management world. And his father's an okay dude too. Those of you coming out of infantry officers course from the early 90s member, the old captain, then captain Mike McNamara. Anyway, thank you all very much for your support of the project. It really means a lot. Some quick thank yous for some of the reviews that are being left. Spotify has a new feature where you can actually leave comments now. If you go to the episode on your podcast player and just scroll down a tiny little bit, you'll see leave a question or a comment option in there and then I get them and I can actually respond to them. That's really great. First one that was left by Weaboot on the second General Furnace or the latest General Furnace episode and he said, quote, interesting hearing about how he doesn't like being micromanaged considering his memo from April of 2019. Otherwise, good information and I agree with quite a lot of, of what he said. So hey, thanks for that comment. It's been a while since I've personally listened to his very first episode back in March of 2022, but I feel like I remember him distinctly saying that he would have actually gone about that letter in a totally different way than he actually did. You know, I think a great takeaway there is that even if you're a three-star general, you can still reflect on decisions that you've made and learn from them. In fact, I'll go so far as to say those are the kind of leaders we want to have stewarding the Marine Corps. So be sure to go back and check out that episode. Thanks for leaving the comment. I know that you and I have DM'd a lot over Instagram and I really appreciate that you're as interested in the project as you are. So thanks for leaving the comment. But definitely go re-listen to that. I think he addresses it there. Semper Music A left a comment on the Colonel McClam episode writing, amazing, I wrote notes and I'm going to listen and write more notes. Yeah, I, and look, I think that's exactly what I'm hoping people are doing with this project. I love it as a medium because you can listen, rewind, take notes, talk about it, and actually use it as a PME at any level of leadership. And that's the best part of this is that everyone is sharing all of these lessons learned. So thanks a lot for leaving that comment. I appreciate it. And it keeps me motivated to carry on with this project. So Apple Podcast had a, a nice review, a five-star review titled Phenomenal Podcast. This entire series of podcast episodes has been incredibly impactful for service members of all branches and all ranks. I second the vote to have more senior enlisted on Brother I Hear You, by the way, and parentheses, on what to add and want to add a plug for a chief warrant officer as well as to let me be your first volunteer. That was from Chief Warrant Officer Lee Bowden. Hey, yeah, hey man, hit me up. The mill office at gmail.com. So the mill office at gmail.com. Just uh, drop me an email and we'll see if we can get line something up. I will tell everybody though that it's starting to get popular and I'm scheduling out into July and August at this point with guests coming on. That's really great. Okay, merchandise, uh, Mission Essential Group, who I use is doing a stand down to tune up their operations. And when it's back up, I'm hoping to collaborate with another veteran artist out there to do some new stuff. I'm not asking for free commissions. I'm just saying, hey man, if you wanna wanna work something out, just uh, drop me a DM on Instagram or hit the website, leave me a comment or something like that. But just get in touch with me and you figure something out. But 
I'm not doing my own artworks, that's for damn sure. Okay, upcoming guests had a little bit of movement around here. Um, first of all, thanks for everyone for all the help in getting me linked up with the senior enlisted leaders. I'm not gonna mention any names until they're all solidly booked, but I have received some great introductions to a lot of master gunnery sergeants out there, and they're all saying yes. I've got three yeses from MARSOC and Special Operations Community Master Gunnery Sergeants, and they're gonna come on and talk about leadership, so I'm really excited for that. Got one yes from a sergeant major who's uh, just coming out of a tour over there in the now 3rd Marine Littoral Regiment. So yeah, hey, sergeant major community, if you wanna cede the space to all the master guns in the community, uh, you know, I'll just toss that red meat into the circle and see where that lands. <laughs> But uh, no, I'm having fun. Uh, yeah, scoreboard master gunner sergeants. Thank you, thank you all so much for being willing to come on. I've got Vice Admiral Mertz, a submariner, submariner. Sorry, sir. I'm trying to work on that. He's scheduled to record here pretty soon. We've had some scheduling difficulties, but he's definitely coming on. Just worked with Comstrat out of Sergeant Major Marine Corps' office today. In fact, he's coming back on in either late May or early June to do a final recap as he moves out of the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps role. Also, sidebar, he did a great interview with uh, Chaps over there on Zero Blog 30, a Barstool affiliate. So definitely go check that out. I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's actually on YouTube, so you can see the video. And it's the first one ever done out of the new Sergeant Major's house over there at the barracks. Really cool. I got Lieutenant Colonel Mike Stansberry coming on. Now, he's the outgoing director of Infantry Officer Course, and so he's going to record in June. I just met with him down at TBS the other day. Really going to be a great great episode. He's got a lot of great insight and a lot of great experience to share with everybody. I'm still making some progress on senior females. I swear to God, I'm making progress with the senior females, which I know is a broken record, but I'm really trying. I feel like once I get one, it's going to be easier from there. So stay tuned. I'm not going to mention any names, but I am working on somebody who, who should be a really good guest. I'm still networking to get other senior enlisted. That's starting to fill up, so I'm really happy about that. I've got another hot wash recording coming. We had to reschedule it because a couple of the, the captains who do that with me were out doing their EWS field operation actually at Fort Sill. So uh, when they're back from that, and then I'm going to actually take a trip down to Fort Sill here over the next couple months. I'm going to interview Colonel Derek Roberson, who's the CEO of the Mardet down there at Fort Sill. And he's offered to get together five or six captains to do a hot wash down there so we can kind of talk about the artillery community and, and hot wash some of the episodes as well too. So that should be pretty good. Okay, quick plug here. This is new. If you have any interest in helping me out with this project, will you reach out to me? I'm working with the folks at Lethal Minds Journal, but we're attempting to round out the podcasting team there. We could just use some help. So if you're good with social media or audio video editing or leveraging any other technology or, or like doing show notes or graphics or anything like that, I would love it if you would help me out. The more people I can leverage who are good at this stuff, the better. It's just going to make for a better product. So reach out to me if you have any interest in, in jumping on the team and helping with some of the back office stuff on this on this project. I'd really appreciate it. Again, um, just reach out to me at themilloffice at gmail.com. And, and the links are obviously in the show notes as well, too. So appreciate that. As you know, I've recently joined forces to collaborate with Lethal Minds Journal and all of the other great content creators and behind the scenes folks there. Again, another special thanks uh, this time again to Cyrus, who is just continuing to help me with the editing on all of these episodes. Cyrus, man, couldn't couldn't be doing it without you. So thanks a lot for your help. But you know, one of the big reasons why I joined forces with them was to scale my efforts and generate some synergy with their efforts, um, not only to defer costs associated with this project, but also to, you know, with the participation in the revenue component of this, because I'm very committed to taking all the money that's left over after all my costs are covered and donating it all to a vet charity. So I am trying to generate revenue and being completely transparent about that, but I'm not trying to generate profits out of it. All the profits, to the extent that there are any, there aren't yet, but there will be, 
I'm, I'm going to give it all away to the vet charity. So that's that. Okay. So with that, Lethal Minds Journal has a sponsorship with FieldSeats.com. Now, FieldSeats.com is this really cool e-commerce, federally licensed firearm dealer. But I mean, I think it's way cooler than that because what they do is they provide these virtual reviews on brand new firearms and optics and gear. And then at the end of those reviews, they actually give the stuff away to someone who's attended the virtual review. So each review has a limited number of seats available for purchase. So the chances of winning the giveaway at the end are actually pretty good. So if you're a listener who's into that that kind of stuff, definitely give fieldseats.com a checkout and enter in to win one of those items being reviewed. So of course there's a code, there's always a code, um, and it's uh, just enter in Lethal Minds and you'll get a 10% off of your seat cost for that virtual review. And then you can also check them out on their Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Same account name for all of those. It's uh, Fields, Field underscore Seats for uh, all those social media sites. That's their account name. Uh, and get there for any updates on their products and in addition to some other cool information they share. But of course, there's a standard disclosure, terms and conditions apply. But yeah, go check it out and see if it's a good fit for you. I think there are a bunch of good dudes over there and their sponsorship really helps support this project that you're listening to. So, you know, there you go. You're helping out. Before I introduce today's guests, there are a few people who I need to thank who worked really hard behind the scenes on this interview setup. Mary Rose, who is the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy's STRATCOM representative. Jonathan Earhart, who is the systems engineer in the Army Multimedia Visual Information Directorate, which is otherwise known as Army Television. Hey, thank you so much for all of your technical support and getting this whole thing set up, as well as some of the other interviews you helped me get set up. I really appreciate your help. Uh, and finally, to Marine Corps Captain Philip Douglas Smith, who is the Marine Officer Instructor down there at Old Miss NROTC Unit. Um, Captain Phillips, thank you. Sorry. Captain Douglas. I want to say Captain Phillips like the movie. Captain Douglas. Hey, look, thank you so much for connecting me with the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It resulted in this great episode. So good luck to you and all of your graduating NROTC midshipmen and, of course, especially the Marine Options. But, you know, try not to play too much favorites. But, you know, hey, got a special heart down there for you guys because I was a Marine Option at NROTC unit too. So my guest for this episode is Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Intelligence and Security, Victor Manella. He, he's my first civilian I've had on, which is kind of exciting. But he serves as the Principal Civilian Advisor to the Secretary of the Navy and the Undersecretary of the Navy on Intelligence, Intelligence-Related Activities, Sensitive Activities, Special Operations, and Irregular Warfare. In addition, he serves as the Department of the Navy's Security Executive Senior Agency Official, leading the Department of the Navy Security Enterprise. Mr. Manila enlisted in the Navy as a hospital corpsman in 1987, where he served as an aerospace physiology and water survival instructor, Navy diver, and parachutist. Following his selection to the Navy Enlisted Commissioning Program, he graduated with honors from the University of Mississippi in 1997 and was commissioned as a Naval officer. So as a Navy officer, Mr. Manila served as an unmanned aviation systems mission commander and detachment avionics division chief conducting naval intelligence, reconnaissance, and surveillance operations. He supported Navy research development and acquisition efforts through the operational test and evaluation of next generation UAS platforms. He served on the USS Independence and as an intelligence officer with the Chief of Naval Operations Intelligence Plot in the Pentagon and with the U.S. Pacific Command. In 2008, Mr. Manila retired from the Navy service and retired from the overall Naval service and joined the Department of the Navy as a civilian. And from there, he has been a member of the Department of the Navy's Senior Executive Service since 2016, where he served as Senior Director, Integration Support Directorate until he was selected for his current assignment. 
He's a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School Senior Executives in National and International Security Program, the Federal Executive Institute, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill's Defense Executive Leadership Program, and he was awarded the Department of the Navy's Superior Civilian Service Award. Just a quick edit note here, right around the three-minute mark when the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy talks about his first duty station, he mentions Orlando when, in fact, he meant to say the Naval Air Station Lemoore, California. So rather than chop up the audio at this point and try to fix that, I figured I would just insert that quick edit here. So when you hear Orlando about three minutes in, make sure what you're really hearing is Naval Air Station Lemoore, California. Welcome, Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Intelligence and Security, Mr. Victor Minella. Sir, thank you so much for being on today. Before we get going, I do want to throw out a couple special thanks because there have been some people who behind the scenes have been super helpful in getting you and I together on this with the facility and everything at the Pentagon. First is your Comstrat, Mary Rose. What a great job she's done in just getting all this set up for us. And then Jonathan Erhardt, who's the systems engineer there at the Army Multimedia Visual Information Directorate. That's a mouthful. So I think they also call it Army Television. And then finally, our mutual acquaintance here, Marine Corps Captain Philip Douglas Smith, who's the Marine Officer Instructor down there at Old Miss uh, at the ROTC unit down there. So thanks for setting this all up. I also have a special shout out to Old Miss because my platoon sergeant at Officer Cannon School was from Old Miss himself, Gunnery Sergeant Black. He was not a nice man. So, <laughs> But thanks for coming on. So really interesting. Here's one of the things that I learned when I was setting all this up with Mary was that, you know, I was asking, what do people call the secretary? And she said, well, we informally refer to him as the dozen. And that's really kind of cool because deputy under secretary of the Navy, dozen, we love our acronyms and everything. But here's what I'm wondering, because I never knew this. Do people refer to you as dozen or is it more like the third person? Do they say, hey, dozen, can you come over here for a second? Or is it more like, hey, the dozen needs you to go brief him on XYZ. Well, Dave, thank you for having me today. It's a real honor to be with you this morning. It's a good question and one that I think it depends on who's asking okay. the question because it is a title that is very commonly used within the Department of the Navy. We've had a dozen Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy with different, I would call it within the brackets, the intelligence security policy, plans, policy, ops, and intel. There's been a number of dozen titles over the years, but yes, they would very well call me the dozen or could the dozen come and brief us on something? Yes. Right. Cool. I like that. Very interesting. I learned that same thing with the SEAC, well, SEAC Clone Lopez when I had him on. Never knew that that was actually a rank. So we learn something new every day. You started out as a corpsman in the Navy, enlisted in 1987. I'm wondering if you can tell us about Seaman Manila. Was he an awesome sailor? Was he a pain in the butt to his superiors? What was young Seaman Manila like? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I was probably a pain in the butt, Dave, honestly. <laughs> I came into the Navy out of a very small town in Mississippi, and I was like many people who enlist I didn't really know what my path was. I didn't really have a true north of where I was going and what I wanted to be. But I grew up in a household of medical professionals and uh, wanted to do something similar. It just seemed like the right fit. But when I came in, I was anything but all in on the Navy. In fact, I think I spent the first few months wondering how I got roped into this four-year tour. Right. Why didn't I go reserves? Why didn't my recruiter provide those options for me? Oh, you mean you have a recruiter story for us? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a very positive story. And I'm glad that he didn't give me other options because had I been given those other options, I probably would have gone right back to being the same non-productive individual I was before I joined the Navy. But Seaman Manella, after coming into the Navy, I tell you what, I locked in pretty quickly. 
after going through boot camp and corpsman A school and then arriving at that first command down at Naval Hospital Orlando was my first duty station. Okay. And so I was intellectually interested in the discipline of being a corpsman, but again, I still wasn't really connecting that this was my career. It's like, how do I get through this tour? How do I get through this shift? And uh, so I probably was a bit of a smart ass as well, especially in those first few years. Right. What do you remember about some of your early experiences with leadership as a young seaman, whether it was your LPO or some of your chiefs or even some of your officers in the hospital medical field? I'm assuming that you still have that general leadership structure like we all have, correct? Definitely. Without a doubt. I think that was something that really helped me mature very quickly. At that time, coming in 87, there was still a lot of Vietnam veterans that were now master chiefs Mm -hmm. in the Navy. And these folks were hard. I mean, they would inspect you on the spot if they saw you. Uh, You're doing something wrong and they're going to let you know. And so I think the sense of accountability that I felt to them, and they certainly took very much pride in ensuring that their sailors were taken care of. I think I learned very, very quickly that This was a group of professionals that loved their profession, wanted you to be a part of it, but you had to really come on board and you really had to start getting with the program very quickly. Right. And uh, it took me a little bit to come up to speed in that regard, but boy, I had a lot of good teachers very early on. That's great. So how long did you stay in the Navy enlisted before you started to pursue a commission? And what was your decision-making process with that I had done, I say, two tours. After Orlando, I went off to advanced training and then out to Hawaii as a survival instructor. And really coming out of that tour, I really felt like there were a couple of things that I was doing and doing very well. And one of those was public speaking, teaching connecting to the students. And these were naval aviation personnel, officers and enlisted. They were going through the aviation survival training program. And I felt like this was something that I was very good at as I was sort of proceeding through the E4, E5 ranks. And I went off to Naval Air Station Orlando for my next tour. And I felt at that point, I was 100% locked in on becoming an officer. And it really had to do with the leadership that was there at the time. A Navy commander became a captain later, Donna Murdoch and Rebecca Bates was my division officer. They were, I think, bigger believers of me than I was of myself. And I think that's what I really needed was someone to help advance. You know, this isn't just something that you might be able to do. Here's the path to do it. Here are the programs. And I started looking at those and a lot of discussions within the workplace and at home. And I found a path in the enlisted commissioning program, which ultimately led me to Ole Miss. Oh, that's great. So I'm assuming close to home was Old Miss close to where you? It was a few hours from where I grew up in Mississippi, mm-hmm. but very close. And Lieutenant Bates at the time, who recently retired as Captain Bates, as my divo, we were having a discussion about the options that I had for attending the Naval ROTC units. And I had, you know, offers, you know, there's roughly 50 schools nationwide, and you basically can choose from any of those as long as you get accepted to the school. Right. And she's like, where did you want to go to school when you were a kid? I said, I wanted to go and miss. She goes, well, that's where you're going to school. Oh, that's great. And I'm not kidding. It clicked right then. And I said, you know, I'll never get a chance to probably have my children near my mother, other cousins. And it was an absolute best decision I could have made. Absolutely love being at that school. That's great. I love that story. For people listening that aren't totally familiar with it, I'll do my best to explain it, but it's the Navy Enlisted Commissioning Program, the Marine Corps Enlisted Commissioning Program, are essentially when somebody's enlisted and they say, hey, 
I want to go be an officer and you go to ROTC just like I went to ROTC, except you're coming in and you're maintaining your rank, you're wearing your uniform, you're getting paid at that rank to go to school and finish your degree and then get commissioned. And I remember the MESEPs and the Navy enlisted, I can't remember the name of their program, what they called it, but they were very influential to the midshipmen who were straight off the street civilians like I was. And we always really looked up to them, both on the Navy side and the Marine side, because they were the ones with a few ribbons and a few sea stories and a few experiences. But what were some of the schools that you wanted to know? Because I do remember in your bio that I saw that you were a parachutist and a water survival instructor and a diver. And so did you go through all those schools while you were enlisted as a corpsman or did you do an MOS change? I did as a corpsman. There's so many opportunities as a corpsman to get into a variety of advanced training, both medical as well as special operations. The diver and and parachutist training that I went to was really to advance the opportunities at select sites throughout the nation where there were concentrations of naval aviation to advance the underwater escape systems, mm-hmm. as well as to conduct with an experienced parachutist the ability to do ejection training and what those parachute sequence of events are going to be and the landing associated with a parachute. And so the training that I went through was really to advance the naval aviation water survival training program and to provide that on-site experience from both a diver and a parachutist that we typically did not have in that program when I was first coming into it. Oh, that's interesting. So did you go to the U.S. Navy dive school, like the little, the silver bubble scuba school, or did you go to more of a salvage? So I was stationed in Hawaii when I went to dive school. Okay. At one point, there is a part of the Navy Submarine Training Center on Fort Island. I would take a ferry at 4.30, 4.45 every morning from over at my housing from Iroquois Point over to Fort Island every morning. And I would spend the next 10, 11, 12 hours a day going to school. It was about a six-week school, mm-hmm. but dive school was on Fort Island. It was just a tremendous place to go to that type of training. Considering the history, uh, we were diving all throughout Pearl Harbor and it was fascinating. But yeah. And then jump school, I went to Fort Benning for that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Were you in a jump bill? Did you become a gold winger? I became a gold winger, but I didn't have that many jumps. You had enough to get the gold wings. I did. I had enough (laughs) to get the gold wings. I wish I would have had more. I love parachuting and my wife and I just recently went free fall over the summer. Oh, wow. I do enjoy it quite a bit. But in addition to supporting the aviation survival, training program, I was directly tied as medical support because I was a corpsman to the EOD's training and evaluation unit there in Hawaii as well. Okay. And so I would go out and do medical support while they were doing their parachute recalls, Okay. which was a fantastic opportunity. They put me through parachute insertion school for the Navy coming out of the C-130 with the ribs and fully packed EOD kit. Fantastic training opportunity. I learned a lot. Oh yeah, I'll bet. And I really turned all of that training back on their survival training program and uh, really developed a really great program for them as well. That's great. I remember back in the 80s, it may have even been when you were there. And the reason I knew about Pearl Harbor having their dive school was because if you were lucky enough, which I was not, as a midshipman in an ROTC unit for your summer training, you could go to dive school. That's right. When the Navy had their dive school there. And I had a couple friends that did their summer training, went to scuba school and they showed up with their little dive bubbles on and I thought they were really lucky. But one other thing worth mentioning before we get off the aviation survival thing is just a quick connection point. My grandfather was the first person to ever test the ejection seat in the Navy. He was in Life magazine and everything. It's crazy. Broke his back when he did it. Yep. They shot him up some ramp thing 
broke his back in a couple places and he was medically retired after that, but he was a flight surgeon and they said, well, we need a doctor to test this first. So yeah, you know, Dave, back in those days, they were actually using black powder charges to shoot them up the rail. That's exactly what they did. Obviously went to compressed air at some point later on, much easier to regulate. You didn't have as many broken aviators at that point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wasn't around for the black powder days, but the stories, uh, they remain. Yeah. For people listening, you can go onto my Instagram page and scroll down and find some old black and white pictures that I took from the life magazine of that. But I'll finish the story real quick by telling you this, or that is really funny because one of the most notable things about those pictures of my grandfather is that he's wearing his tie. He's wearing his khaki uniforms with tie and chuck boots, and he's in his khaki uniform. No helmet, no safety glasses, no gloves, nothing. It's, hey, you're in your khaki uniform? Boom, we're firing you off this thing with a black powder charge into the Pensacola Bay or wherever it was. It did it. It's crazy. It's horrible. It's funny. But okay, so you go to the NROTC unit. So you're showing up with scuba bubble, dive wings, mm -hmm. couple ribbons and everything. What were some of the initial things that you remember really imprinting upon you about all of a sudden you're in this transformation process of now becoming an officer? What were some of your recollections about that time, some of those aha moments that you had when you're going through that transformation? You know, I think being able to be immersed in an academic institution full time was something that I took a lot of pride in. I had gone to night school forever. Mm -hmm. I was already six, seven years into the Navy by the time I went to Ole Miss. Probably had 90 credits by the time I arrived. And just being able to dedicate yourself to that full-time endeavor was something that I realized how much I missed maybe earlier in my life. But I was so prepared. I think a big observation for me was how committed and prepared I was as an older person attending college in their mid to late 20s as compared to maybe some of the other students that were a part of the ROTC at the time. Brilliant people, but the dedication that I had and others have, I think, after being prior enlisted, knowing what you have in front of you and this opportunity that's been presented to you, I think the big takeaway for me while I was there is I got the most out of college because I was the most prepared when I went there. Right. Yeah. I mean, you had those years of maturity and yeah. being in the Navy and then getting afforded an opportunity to go to college probably took it a lot more seriously than most people. One of the things that I want to spend some time talking about, and I'm hoping that you can sprinkle these in over the course of the interview, but you have something that you call the dozens dozen, and it's your philosophies on leadership. I'll list them off and then we can talk about them. Number one is live your oath, be bold, be kind, exercise urgency, always over prepare, know your audience, be genuine, be a storyteller, be brief, be gone, be uncomfortable. Be a mentor always, value enthusiasm, and finally celebrate opportunity and success. Those are fantastic. I love those. And again, I will post those in the show notes for people. But I'm wondering, did you start to develop those things right there at ROTC? Or were these things that you developed over time? Or did you just sit down one day and say, I'm going to dump all of my years of knowledge into my dozens dozen? I really didn't prepare these. I think all of these were who I was and have been for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Coming into this role, I felt that I certainly had an obligation to articulate my leadership 
philosophy and that people were going to be expecting that, I think, a lot more frequently to really understand who I was and what I was about. And actually, I did this fairly early on. I've been in the job seven months now. So within the first couple months, I sat down and wrote these out. I certainly have discussed these many times over my career. I've discussed these in lectures at other Naval ROTC units, but to put these on and then obviously the humor in this is that I get to actually say dozen, dozen. Right. I thought was just an opportunity to really create something that was catchy enough that people actually might remember some of it. Right. You couldn't have 11. That wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. The dozens 11 was not going to work. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So your ROTC, now I'm fast forwarding here a little bit, well, I'm bouncing around too, but you're days away from being commissioned, if not, you know, like getting commissioned. And all of a sudden there's that transformation, right? You're taking off your enlisted rank and you're putting on your ensign shoulder boards for the very first time. And I'm wondering at that moment, when you looked back at all the experience that you had prior to that, can you think of a time where you did something wrong in your enlisted career that you got in trouble for? And do you remember how that was handled by your command or your CO or the senior enlisted? And how formative was that experience or those experiences, if there was more than one, to who then Ensign Manila was about to become. There's one that sticks out, and I've mentioned this a few times in other leadership discussions. Early on in that time at Naval Hospital Orlando, I was a part of a fleet medical team that would fly out to Camp Pendleton every so often and go through the establishment of like a MASH unit, fleet hospital support team. Mm -hmm. And we knew when we were leaving, I was prepared, sea bag was packed, and I overslept the morning that the bus was leaving to go to the airport. Oh. I still think back on those times as why didn't someone come knock on my door? Because I was living in the barracks right across the road. So I'm not sure what that means. Mm -hmm. But I grab my sea bag, walk across the street, show up to the quarter deck. And there was a commander there that I basically reported what had happened to. Oh, she was furious with me. And again, as I mentioned to you, I was a little bit of a smart ass, Dave. And so she said to me, she goes, you miss ships movement, young man. And I looked at her and I said, I thought we were going by plane. <laughs> and she did not like that. Oh, geez. And no one would. I, I, I should have not said it. But instead of like putting me a restriction on the spot, she says, you know, go see the petty officer of the watch and let's get you out there to that training. And I did. I went to see the first class and he was absolutely suburb. You know, yeah, yes, you're a knucklehead, you know, Seaman Manella but we're going to get you on a plane and get you out there. They need you out there, and we don't have time to talk about this right now. In fact, I got on a plane and actually arrived in San Diego well before the rest of the folks that had left an hour or so before me. It was kind of a funny story that I got out there. When I came back from that training, though, I never heard about it again. Oh. And so— It was interesting because I was nervous that, I mean, again, I certainly did miss a military movement. I was without a doubt. And I consider that pretty serious as well. But no one ever brought it up again. And so to bring that forward to my officer days is that, you know what, very junior sailors and I would say junior officers, are going to make mistakes. They just are. They have a lot of lessons to learn that they just have not learned. And I feel as though there was some compassion in the fact that they didn't overreact and say, well, you're done, buddy. You know, we're going to send you to NJP. No, they didn't do that. It was about the mission. Right. And so the goal was to get me out to that location so that I could conduct the training so I could be a better corpsman and be a part of that team that I had already, you know, in some ways had let down. And so I would say moving forward as an officer, without a doubt, I took that experience with me and that as 
problems arise with junior sailors, you know, I think you need to take a deep breath sometimes as an officer and say, okay, well, first of all, this wasn't the worst thing in the world. Let's talk to this young man, young lady, find out why they made this mistake and just show them that you're going to be a positive leader in this and we're going to learn from this mistake and we're going to move forward and we're never going to talk about it again. Yeah. The reason I like to ask that question, it's a general question I ask a lot of people on the podcast. And the reason I like to get the answer is because I do think that there is this component to leadership, which is so important about looking at a mistake. And General Mattis had a quote. I'm gonna. I'm hoping that I get it right. It sounded something like this. You need to completely understand the difference between a mistake and a lack of discipline. And you punish the latter and you improve your leadership for the former. It was something like that. And basically what he was saying was you punish the lack of discipline, but you, know, you have to use your leadership to mentor people through a mistake, mm -hmm. right? So your story was kind of a mistake, really. Right. It really wasn't lack of this. When you're young and you made a quip, right? Right. But I think it's important also, and I like to talk about it because there's also this possibility of somebody saying, well, I got hammered for something like that when I was younger and now I'm a chief or I'm a 03 and that's how it was handled when I was younger. And this is how I'm going to handle it too. And there can be a tendency for overreaction. But I do think that when you look at somebody and you can just determine the difference between a lack of discipline and just a mistake and mentor them and, and educate them, you'll make that lasting impression that you just shared mm -hmm. with us. And I think that's important. Kind of a follow-up question there, sir. Can you remember at that point in your life, and if there was one that was better later in life, please jump ahead, but can you remember the best lesson you were taught by your worst leader? Yeah, I've thought about this uh, quite a bit. Some of them I think would be maybe more important for your audience. I won't be able to cover during today's discussion, but I will relay a story from when I was at Naval Air Station Barber's Point as a survival instructor. I saw something that disturbed me pretty significantly, and it was focused around integrity. Mm -hmm. As a part of that program, obviously, there are absolute uncompromised guidelines for naval aviation training that every aviator has to adhere to. The training that we were doing on aerospace physiology, aeromedical aspects of aviation, and water survival are written in stone, and you could even say they're written in blood, mm -hmm. because something happened at some point in naval aviation that led that NATOPS manual to say, you're going to do this and this is why you're going to do it. And we were doing training one morning for a group of students and my officer in charge came out. She saw someone that she knew in the class and she pulled that individual out of the class and they left, literally got in a car and left. What I didn't know was that there was a pattern that had been developing where my officer in charge was doing that for select students. In other words, she was signing off that they had completed the training when they had not. Oh, okay. And sort of the gravity of what was going on at that point was really starting to take a toll on the enlisted instructors. There was a chief present there at that unit, but mostly E5s and E6s as instructors. And so at some point later on, there was a discussion with us about command climate in the organization, because there had been other complaints about this individual that I was not a part of, but I was approached by the commanding officer. The OIC was essentially a department head within the command that I was in. And when I mentioned this to him, you know, certainly didn't run uh, forward and say, I, I think there's a problem immediately. I probably should have done that. But when I did reveal this story, I could see the look on his face about how what she was doing was undermining the integrity of our entire profession. Mm -hmm. 
And I think in addition to that, obviously the risk that had been imposed on naval aviation by taking those officers or others out of that training opportunity, and they only get that every few years. And so did they miss something that is going to be a life or death education for them, even as a refresher? And a lot of times I get it. We go through this training and you know this, Dave, you go through training, you're like, gosh, I can't believe I'm having to do this again. It's very repetitive, but it's repetitive for a reason. It's because you need to remember, you must be attentive to these issues because they can sneak up on you. Very insidious, especially when you're flying, if you're not paying attention to some of these aspects of aeromedical aspects of flying. And I will tell you that it did lead to her dismissal and removal from that position following an IG investigation. It was the absolute right call to make. I think what I learned from that, I think some of it is very obvious, but it goes back to my number one on the dozens dozen, which is live your oath. I think your oath is more than just standing up with your right hand raised and in act and word repeating the oath. It really is about living it every single day. And are you committed to the ethical behavior that you swore that you would defend in that oath? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, you know, 99% of the people out there, even higher than that, are absolutely doing that every single day and are the right kinds of people that we want inside the Defense Department. But there are always those that are trying to sneak inside the wire that don't believe in that. And it's just a thing to them. It's not real and it has no meaning to them. And I think those are the ones that I feel like in my career since that time, I have been constantly on guard for because I think it is all of our responsibility to ensure the public trust, to ensure that we don't let people erode that public trust through unethical behavior. And that certainly was a gross violation of the ethical commitment that that officer had taken, violating not only rules and regulations, but the safety of future air crews. Right. So I think that's one of the most lasting ones. And that happened fairly early in my career, and I'm glad it did when it did. It certainly shaped me in terms of how I approach my dealings as a dozen. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, because I think one of the things that I know that resonates with listeners that get feedback is that when people tell stories about what they saw or were involved in or, or witnessed, those stories really resonate with people because you can say all the time, hey, you take an oath, you're responsible for ethical behavior. But then when you tie a story in from somebody's experience, it just really solidifies that. And so thank you for sharing that with us. I will kind of add on to that, too, and say, you know, not only that, but one of the other destructive parts of that behavior by that leader was that you saw it. Right. So the men and women who were running that training were witnessing this behavior and it was probably degrading confidence in the leadership. It was creating a morale problem. And you didn't specifically discuss those. And maybe those things did or didn't happen. But I think listeners need to understand that when you start showing those kind of favorable treatments, not only is it unethical and dangerous to future air crews, but it's also demoralizing to all of the junior leaders who are seeing you do it. It absolutely was. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that story. So now fast forward into you know Ensign Manila. Talk about your first couple years and what were some of those aha moments? I, this is nice because I get to ask this question twice because you had two different experiences. What were some of those aha moments that you had 01 to 03 that were some great sea stories? What were some things that you remember those crystallizing moments that you still carry forward today and are probably have permeated your dozens dozen? One of those was, I think, probably the first time that I felt that I was very proud to be a naval officer, you know, and it always comes back to me for, you know, what did I do for the people that were working for me? You know, there's a lot of operational stories that we could go into, and I may share some of those as we go through, but I think as an ensign, I was on the USS Independence. Yes, yeah, so were you a SWO? I was not. I did enter into the flight program coming out of ROTC, and there was MPQ'd out of that, and okay. I ended up out on the Independence, out in Japan with a very short 
short notice deployment to the Gulf to support Operation Southern Watch. And so I was on there as an aviation officer, unrestricted line, while I was waiting orders to naval intelligence. Oh, okay. So the independence. Yep. What year was that? That was 1998. Okay. Yeah, got there in 97. I was only out there a year, then I reported back to VC6 there in Southern Maryland, where I flew uh, unmanned systems for a while. But while I was out there, that was a tough job. Aviation community, you have a lot of enlisted in those divisions, aviation bosun's mates, structural mechanics, very tough young men and women. And there was one young man while I was the branch officer there, before I became the division officer, that was getting in a lot of trouble. He was clearly an angry young man, and he had been in a couple fights, and one in particular where there's some injuries, I think, to one of the other sailors, and he was in the brig. This was shortly after I got there, uh, arrived on the ship. And so I went to visit him. He was one of mine, so I went to visit him, and just a very cold person at this point. I felt like he was clearly lost at this point, just like, okay, my career's over. I don't want to be here anyway. And I would go down and visit him every day. We were very busy, but I would always find a reason to go visit him. And then even after he came out of the brig while he was waiting in JP, I continued to talk to this young man. And what I found was coming into the Navy, you remember the old stories, Dave, where people said, the judge told me I was either going to jail or I was going in the military, right? Right. I think this was more of a modern day story like that. Okay. Yeah. He certainly had been involved in a lot of crime and tough neighborhoods. And it was just sort of a product of his upbringing. Okay. Maybe not an excuse in the long run, but he certainly had not really washed himself of that and really had not embraced the Navy and what we were about. And as I continued to talk to him, he wanted to talk more. And so as we were waiting proceedings for NJP, I went to speak to the department head and I said, is there any way I can petition the charge associated with the fight that he got into? And he goes, uh, well, you know, go talk to the master chiefs. So I went and spoke to the command master chief. <laughs> okay. So here comes Ensemanilla into the, yeah. the chief's mess. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Marching in there and I've got this great idea, you know, right. and uh, it was certainly received with some skepticism, but I made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. And it it was this, is that if we proceed him through NJP with a likely outcome of him going back to the brig or being processed out of the Navy, you have now lost an opportunity to change one person's life today. Mm-hmm. I was an E1 once and I had someone give me the opportunity for second chances. And there were many other second chances that I was given. Are you going to say that this is the ditch we're going to die in on this young man and say that we only have one path and that path is punishment. Mm -hmm. Has any one of you had the opportunity to sit down and speak with him? And the answer was no. And I said, well, I have. And I think this guy can be rehabilitated. I think we can do something good for him that will have a lasting impression on him long after he leaves the Navy or while he stays in the Navy. And I couldn't believe it, but they agreed. And at some point, I don't know how all that happened, but he was not processed for NJP, did not go to exo screening. And I continued to talk to him over time. And I think one of the things that he told me that was, you know, I don't remember his name, Dave. That's the thing about 36 years. You know, I'm not so sure I'll, I remember a lot of the names, but I remember his face and I remember what he said to me. He said, you know, sir, there has never been a single person that has sat down and had this type of conversation with me. And boy, that's a that's a tough pill to swallow when you're a busy person and, and you think, gosh, I, you know, I just want to lead positive people here. I want to lead people who are at the top of their game. Well, that's not the typical story. We get a lot of broken people in the Navy and the Marine Corps, and we need to take care of those people because we advertise that we're this mm-hmm. 
strong group of professionals with camaraderie and we take care of our own. Well, you know what? We took care of that young man during that time and I'm not sure where he ended up. I really wish I did, but I will tell you the rest of the time we owned a ship, he was an absolute model sailor. We never had another problem with him. He opened up, he would communicate and he never ever got in another fight. And anyway, just a great news story, a very personal story for me and one that had I not been prior enlisted, I'm not so sure I would have done all of that. Oh, that was going to be my follow-up question. That's interesting. I'm still going to follow up with that question, but give me some license here to deviate a little bit. So that gets back to the statement I was making. And again, I, I need to go back and get that quote right, but it's the know the difference between a mistake and a lack of discipline. And there is no book of mistakes and book of lack of discipline, right? It's not like something you can reference. As a leader, you just need to identify, was this a lack of discipline or was this a mistake? And can I use my leadership to improve that or should I discipline it? Should I punish the lack of discipline? And that's where our roles as leaders come in. And if you're a leader, a junior leader, and you don't have the experience to really know the difference, to go out and seek some advice from people who do have some experience in seeing the difference. But that's exactly what you did, which was you decided this is a mistake and I'm going to use my leadership to mentor this young man to turn him into a better sailor and give him an opportunity to make up for it. Great way to say it. But I'm also, I kind of want to come back to you walking into the chief's mess, right? I mean, probably wasn't the best, but I'm just going to say it because everybody knows what it is. You're walking in there. What was that like, sir? I mean, like, okay, you had the gravitas of being prior enlisted. So you've had some, but you weren't a chief. So it's not like you were one of them. Can you relive that moment for us? Just going into a bunch of chiefs and saying, hey, I've got an idea. I think that's a hard thing to do. I want to hear that story. It was a little bit nerve wracking. Obviously, they didn't know me. Most of them didn't. I think my mm -hmm. my chief was present for that as well, the one that worked for me as the branch officer. But again, this is their thing. They're like, you know, kind of stay out of it in a way. But I refuse to stay out of it. Right. I think that there was no doubt in their mind that I was not going to just have this conversation if they didn't agree. I was going to come back and we were going to find a way to create a different path for this young man. And so I think that, again, I was very respectful. And of course, I would always be that. But I was also bold enough to, and they could tell that I was going to be relentless about the approach to this and that this is the way I'm going to do business the entire time I'm on this ship. Right. And I think they absolutely respected that. It was ultimately a great conversation. And I became friends with a lot of those chiefs on the ship. And we worked a lot of hard problems together. But we, it really started with this one. It's like, wow, we have an officer that actually does care about this sailor. Not that they officers don't, they do. But to take the time to go after this one, I think was an opportunity for me that there was no way I was going to pass that up. And without a doubt, they saw that. Yeah. And this also just dawned on me too, but because a lot of listeners are senior enlisted and I'll say this too, because I'm thinking back to 01 second Lieutenant Dave Armstrong, right? Look, if a young, if a young 01 or 02 is coming in and talking to the senior staff NCOs of a ship or a Marine unit or any unit like that, that's taking a lot of guts. That officer, it's like showing a lot of guts because that's a really scary thing to do. You're somebody with very limited experience going and trying to plead your case or talk to a, people who have an enormous amount of experience, especially as a group, like, hey, maybe cut that guy or gal a break because that takes a lot of guts to come in and talk to a group of very seasoned and capable leaders like that and plead a case. But that was kind of funny. So moving on and now jumping forward, and we can always jump back to any time in your, in your Navy. And I know we probably will, but you're a deputy undersecretary of the Navy. That is a, that's a big deal, right? So you had a whole career in the Navy, retired, 
And then you moved into the civilian world. Can you draw some attachment points to the specific leadership lessons that you learned when you were in the Navy that are still really applicable to your current role as a civilian leader in the Department of the Navy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I can go back a little bit to my days as a corpsman. I'll bring this quickly forward, Dave. You know, trust is such an essential component of everything we do in any professional endeavor. And I think early on as a corpsman, having such responsibility on you for the care and wellness of sailors and family members, you have to be competent at what you do. Competent is an essential component of trust. And you really need to fight to learn your trade and your craft very early on in any profession that you take on because it is the only thing that you have when you're first into a new role. And so I felt like my military career did prepare me very well to learn quickly Mm -hmm. as well as triage because uh, the volume of information as you continue to build rank, every rank brings on new complexities and a new workload, a workload that you may not be prepared for. And I'll talk a little bit about that as a senior executive, but I will tell you that going from enlisted to officer, the obligation, the responsibilities that you have are endless compared to many of the ones that I experienced as an enlisted sailor, even as an officer. Now as a dozen, I don't think I was fully prepared, certainly as I came into the SES ranks, the senior executive service ranks, for the volume of responsibility, the volume of things coming at you on a continuous basis. We laugh about this in the Pentagon is that, you know, you spend your day 30 minutes at a time. If you look at your calendar, that's about all you get. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of time to think, not a lot of time to sit and reflect. And so the agility of that as you are proceeding through your day and through the months ahead requires an enormous amount of energy and stamina, mental stamina as you go through this. But I don't believe of all the things that I was prepared for coming out of the military service into civilian ranks, the volume of information and the agility required to balance those as a senior executive. Yes, I was prepared in many ways, but you have to get into it. You have to get in and start swimming. It's like getting on the on-ramp out here on the beltway. You've got to pick up speed very quickly. Right. And you do that through learning. You do that through conditioning, mistakes. And I certainly made quite a few very quickly. I also felt that that transition from military to civilian, there is a major mental aspect of that as well. When you take off that uniform, you take off in many ways your very public resume of who you are in the profession of arms. You put on a suit, you go to a meeting, you're walking down the hall, no one's acknowledging you for your rank. And I think that at times, I believe military officers, military personnel will sometimes lose that identity and not be able to regain it very quickly. And it does take some time to rebuild that sort of bona fides as a civilian employee. Mm -hmm. I certainly experienced that, but I think you do that by just getting in the mix as quickly as you possibly can. One of the most important decisions I made when I left government was that I was so passionate about the military. I wanted to stay in, in a different capacity. I did retire on my own terms, but I wanted to be a part of the Defense Department. I wanted to work in this field. And so I got into it right away with a mentality that I'm going to take this next stage of my career, not that I'm transitioning from military to civilian, but this is just the next phase of my public service. And I really dedicated myself to that. But I will tell you that the mental shift is not always an easy one from military to civilian. And I think a lot of it has to do is that you're no longer a colonel, you're no longer a captain or an admiral. You're a civilian sitting at a table where people may not know you personally and they cannot identify your seniority with something on your collar. Right. And that's interesting. That's also really important. Let's spend a few more minutes on that because 
your experiences with transitioning into civilian leadership in the Department of Defense, but every single person transitioning out of the military is struggling with that too, because even if they don't become civilian leaders, they're retiring, they're going somewhere else. And that loss of identity, what I have witnessed with my friends who spent entire careers in the military and got out is I think that's one of the biggest struggles that they all have is that loss of identity. So you're right. You wear your rank everywhere you go for 20, 30, maybe even more years. And then you're walking around in a blazer with nothing on and you see them all the time. There's nothing wrong with this, but it's just an example. You'll see that hanging on to the identity with the lanyards that people wear around their necks in the Pentagon or the pins that they wear on their lapels or things like that. And I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying you can tell how powerful that tribe, that connection is that we have to our services. But that's really interesting because what were some of the things that you experienced early on in your transition into civilian life that helped you overcome that losing the identity, losing the brotherhood, air quotes? What were some of the things that you remember as being lessons learned from that experience? I think, you know, you just thank God sometimes for the decisions you make in those transitions because they're so important for that transition period in that short amount of time from, say, the first year maybe to the first 18 months. And I think that I was fortunate enough to be hired as a civilian supporting very important and sensitive national security programs. And so I was able to bridge the loss of that physical identity and replace that with an above average satisfaction in my first job after leaving active duty ranks. Mm -hmm. In fact, I felt as much or more connected to the military in my civilian job that I did in my previous military roles, which were very staff-like roles. And I became a part of some just incredible programs and activities that were supporting national security. So I think that that transition out of the military, while you don't have to find your perfect job as a civilian right away, sometimes you just want to get, you know, the job. Right. I think you need to be very thoughtful about that and think about it early enough so that you can have options at your disposal and say, well, I really want a clean break from the military. If that's what you want, then great. I did not want that. And I'm glad I did not go that route. It has made all the difference. But I think the selection of the position is key because you'd really have to be proud of what you're doing because you're losing a sense of your pride in a way by taking off that uniform. It truly is who you've been. And I think that many military personnel in those transition find something in their next their next role that may not be as satisfying as their previous one in uniform. And that is a danger in many ways because the stress of that is not something that you need added to that. That overall transition. Right. That's interesting. I'm going to freelance a couple of questions based on what you just said. But do you see a lot of transitioning senior leaders coming out of the military and coming into GS positions in the Department of Defense, Navy or anything like that? Is there a pipeline there or is that an opportunity that maybe a lot of people don't consider when they're getting out of the military for someone like you who does want to stay connected to the military? I would say that I see a lot of transition from senior military, such as flag and general officers. I'm not really seeing that type of transition into civilian ranks. I'm certainly it's occurring, but definitely more in the, uh, you know, 04 to 05, maybe 06. They're retiring at that time. Okay. I think there is a good understanding of the opportunities that do exist in civil service for transitioning military officers. It's certainly not perfect, but I think that we all work with civilians as military. If you're in the Pentagon, as an example, I mean, there's as many civilians, I feel, in the Pentagon as there are military. So you're certainly working with a lot of civilians and you get to understand their community, what might be available for you as a transitioning officer. And you can find so many different things to get into. And I'm using the Pentagon as sort of my basis of that information. But yeah, I think that 
people do understand that there is an option for civil service and continuing your public service out of uniform as a civilian. And it's not incredibly challenging to make that transition if the positions are available. Right. And so do you have some advice based on your perspective way up high for the junior leaders who are in that chain of command where the word is eventually going to get up to you and then hire. Do you have some advice or some experience to share there that can help them be better at their jobs on the spot at that time? I think the perspective that I bring to this is that regardless of how bad news travels, it needs to come swiftly. It needs to come as quickly as you can provide it, realizing that first reports are usually wrong or certainly not completely accurate. But there are people on the other end of that, at the top of this organization, secretary, CNO, and commandant, that want that information and need that information and care about that Marine on the ground. I think that all too often we believe that those in the Pentagon are disconnected from those on the ground. And that is absolutely a false narrative. These leaders absolutely want to know if there's been an injury or a circumstance that has led to mission failure, and they feel an obligation to help every way that they possibly can and want that information and feel that it is their responsibility. So I think from a junior officer is that at every levels of echelon, there are leaders in this organization of the Department of the Navy that want to ensure that you are succeeding. And information that you provide, even if it is a failure, may lead us to make future decisions or purchases of equipment that would lead to us never having to experience that again with, say, that same type of operation. Right. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Related to that line of questioning, the burden of command, because everybody has it from a lieutenant on up or an ensign on up, what were you not prepared for after all of your experience in the military? What did you find yourself not prepared for in your current role as a civilian leader? What did you come in one day and be like, whoa, holy <laughs> cow, I never saw that coming? <laughs> I think I'll go back to the complexity and volume of issues. Mm -hmm. And while there is some prep time, you're expected to start running very quickly. And I had watched these leaders. I had a sense of that. But I think every grade that you increase, when you go from an SES 2 to a deputy under, which is at sort of a three-star level equivalent, there are expectations that those roles that you don't really understand until now you have that responsibility. It is absolutely about the volume and agility required to balance that volume of information and to ensure that when you're discussing a major issue, that that you have to be focused and all in on that issue because someone is expecting you to make a decision or provide advice on a significant military issue that will be lasting. Mm -hmm. And I think the gravity of that is evident every day in this role. And I certainly do enjoy it. It is, it is a fascinating position. But I think all senior leaders, as you start to grow in these roles, and every rank brings that additional complexity and volume, you better rest up when you can and to take the downtime when you can, because when you come back in, you're engaged at a very rapid fire pace and people are expecting you to come prepared. Right. What sort of advice do you have to give to somebody who's in the military, maybe looking at a transition at the 20-year mark, and wants to branch out into military civilian leadership? What sort of advice do you have for them coming out of the armed forces and looking at a career like yours? I think your transition out of the military is really a family conversation. It is a personal one, but certainly it is what your long-term objectives are. It could be location, it could be mission, it could be money. You really need to look at that and you need to prioritize what's going to be most important to you in that time frame. Because again, you may not get a lot of time to prepare for this, so you do need to start thinking about it. I think something else you should do, and I didn't do well enough, was better networking and really understanding those that I could count on 
as I started to proceed through the transition. I kind of came late into that. It all worked out for me, but I think you really need to work on your networking and really understanding your up and out collaboration network. Who are those people that you work with now that you could rely on advice? Start talking to mentors, start meeting with people that you trust and leaders who have provided an example for you. It looks like maybe they've been successful at this. And then to also, I think you really need to focus on your health. I always see, and I experienced this myself, you take off the uniform and there's a tendency to let yourself go. Like, well, I don't have to do the PFT. I have no physical requirements at this point to stay in the military. Weight gain, the stress of that, you have to really think about as you are transitioning, what are those things that change for you in many ways forever? And that is loss of identity as a military uh, member. Mm -hmm. But then you also really need to focus on the things that you've always been really good at. And I think the great thing about being in the military is we do focus on health and wellness. We want people to be in shape. It is a major aspect of our leadership. We want people to be healthy in the force. And I think you cannot let that go. The amount of benefits that you get out of maintaining your health through this transition is probably the single greatest thing that you can do for yourself in those early years. And all too often, I find that transitioning military personnel, including myself, we put that on the back burner to our own detriment. Yeah. I was just thinking about this the other day too, sir, because one of the things that I was discussing with somebody who is looking at a transition was, and this was a MARSOC officer. And I said, look, you just spent your entire career staying in shape and the Marine Corps afforded you time in your day to stay in shape. And in the military, there's generally nothing wrong with saying, okay, I'm going to go PT at lunch. And you put on your PT gear and you go wherever you're going to PT and you come back and you could sit at your desk for an hour in your PT gear and then go take a shower or whatever and then change back in. And that is very commonplace. It's not the civilian world. The civilian world does not afford you those opportunities to stay in shape and you need to find time to do it on your own. Now, here's the good news. The best part about a civilian career is you only work half days, right? 12 hours. <laughs> okay. So, so you've got to figure out a time outside of those 12 hours because nobody's going to look very favorably on you even, you know, most people expect you to eat lunch at your desk. So going out and taking an hour and a half to go PT or something like that is kind of off the board. I think that's a really hard thing for people to adjust to when they do enter the civilian world is making that time. And to your point, it's one of the first things that kind of goes by the wayside because you're like, I have this new job. I need to make an impression and everything. And, and I went through it. And I think a lot of people do. And, and you're right. It's, that's one of the hardest things. You think it's easy to stay disciplined on your physical conditioning because you've been spending 20 years doing it. It's a lot harder than you think. Pretty interesting. So I'm going to ask you a question that's going to set up my next question. Can you talk a little bit about who your subordinate leaders are? And then I'm going to ask you a question about how you manage that. Yes. So the structure that I have currently, I have two executives that work for me that manage much of the intelligence, security, and sensitive activities portfolio. And they're civilians also, correct? They are civilians. We have a mix of active duty and civilians in our workforce, like most organizations of this type do, but very centric civilian population in the group. Okay. In terms of management of them, you know, I think very early on in each of their time, and some of them are just coming into their positions now, we have really tried to create a battle rhythm where I am not always tasking. And this will lead to a topic that I think is relevant to the transition from military to civilian is that executives, I expect to be executives. I'm not here to micromanage you. I don't expect to be micromanaged by my bosses, and I'm not. We know our missions. We design them. We design them together, and we move out. You report back problems. Where can I break down barriers for you? Where can I help you with resourcing? And certainly, I'm always there for advice. 
I think one of those challenges that I experienced in the transition and sort of that civilian transition was in the military, I feel like we're very attuned to directing. I went through a training course after I became a civilian that taught me a lot about who I was as a leader. And it was through what's known as the Federal Executive Institute. And in that discussion, they really broke you down as a leader and what you were good at and what you were not so good at. What I was not good at was coaching. I worked in a very high pressure environment. There wasn't a lot of time for, you know, in many ways, deliberation on some of the jobs. But even as a civilian early on, I was horrible at actually coaching people. You come and ask me a question, I'm going to give you the answer. That is the absolute wrong approach. Mm -hmm. What I found was, is I was attending way more meetings. I was making a lot more decisions and I was not training and teaching those civilian and military personnel below me to use their own mind and their own brain, their own analytical skills to come to these decisions. You want to bring me COAs, you want to bring me options, great. But I really had to force myself, and this was incredibly challenging to do, to stop directing everybody and giving everyone the answers to the test questions. I made them go find the answers. We did talk about them, but I really eased off of the directing and giving all of those answers. I think that is the leader I am today. While there's a lot of conversations with my senior leaders, what I don't do is I don't tell them, you must, you have to, you will, unless that is an absolute necessity. Sure. And sometimes it is, but right. It is. It absolutely is. And we certainly do go through that. I think there's a balance to that. But if you find yourself always having to be directive, it's either you or it's them. And I think you need to look at yourself first because I don't think you're training or conditioning your leaders to be the thinkers that we need them to be. Uh, and certainly the thinkers that we need them to be as they become senior leaders themselves. If they're just coming to us because we know them, we'll tell them what to do. That is not a place I ever want to be in again. And I think I would not have been near as successful and would have not been prepared for a job like this had I not changed the way that I manage my workforce. That's really insightful. And it's also timely because I just finished up a podcast. It's not live yet, but by the time this one goes live, people will have hopefully listened to it. And in our interview, she was talking about some leadership challenges that she faced. And she mentioned a book by David Marquette, who's a retired Navy captain, uh, submariner, submariner, sorry. She taught me that they don't like submariner. They like submariner <laughs> called Turn the Ship Around. And I've become recently fascinated with command of a submarine underway because I don't have any experience, you know, other than the hunt for Red October. You don't really know anything about the submarine community. So I just, on a whim, I got this book and it came in yesterday from Amazon. I got two sentences into it, sir, before I had to go get my highlighter. I mean, I'm 15 pages into this thing. And when we're done with this interview, I'm going to go read some more of it. It is so fascinating to me because very early on in the book, he starts talking about, and the foreword is written by Stephen Covey, who then tells the story about when he went underway on the submarine with Captain Marquette. And he said, and you can kind of tell what the book's going to be about just from this, he said, Stephen Covey said, one of the things I noticed was that the skipper, he always asked people, what do you intend to do? And when people came to him, they didn't say, sir, what should I do? What we need to, they were conditioned to basically come in and say, I intend to take the submarine down to 400 feet. And he would say, carry on. And that was how he led. And all of a sudden, sir, I started thinking about this. And I just listened to what you said, too. And I was an okay leader. I'm going to give myself 
50%, right? I think I fell right in the middle, but I still lead a civilian organization. I'll give myself a ranking of 50% there too. So I'm no authority on this, even though I'm shepherding this project, but I'm getting better and better at being a leader every single time I do one of these. And what I heard you just say is almost an exact correlation to what I just read in that book, which was your job as a leader isn't to say, I want you to do this. I need you. Every now and then, like we said, it has to be done. But gosh, if you can just start developing your people to come to you and say, this is what I intend to do, just checking in, just making sure. And you can become a leader that says yes or no. You can delegate the task and not necessarily get involved in managing it. I really wish that I had figured that out earlier in my life and in my career. And the reason I asked you that, sorry, that was a really long preamble. I'm probably going to edit most of that out. Oh, it's fantastic. I like it. <laughs> the, the reason... The, the reason I asked you the question about your support is because I actually wanted to talk about the word intent a little bit and say, you know, intent is great so long as your subordinate leaders understand how you think. And I'm curious if you can spend a little bit of time talking about how you teach your subordinates, not just today, but in your past. How did you teach them to how you would think when you're not around to answer their questions or guide them? Did you have a technique that was successful or some stories to share there? The technique isn't necessarily something that I probably thought I was doing at the time, but I think going back to this issue of intent and creating an organization that's a thinking organization is not relying on just one leader to make all the decisions. I think it really comes down to valuing every single person at the table. And that I think if I gave any lesson, and I hope I did this to every organization I was a part of, is that there was never a time that I dismissed an idea, even if it was a bad idea. It was just another idea that maybe didn't wash out in the end. But that idea was valuable to the entire organization to understand either what my own risk tolerance was, or I would then educate as to why that decision was not one that we would be carrying forward. I think the concept of creating this psychologically safe environment to communicate at all levels of echelon is, I think, what we all strive to do or should strive to do. Realizing that commanders give direction, sometimes there's no time for deliberation, but in the absence of that, when we do have time to deliberate, you can learn a lot from the most junior person in your organization. And if that individual feels empowered to make a call or to say something to you in a meeting, even as the deputy under, and to not shy away from the boldness of that conversation, because you have set the conditions as a leader to ensure that you have already won as a leader. You have created something so special in your organization that everyone will start to emulate. Everyone will start to advance. And I will tell you that I've cautioned my team is that, you know, this is an internal issue for me. I want my internal team, but I feel like you also need to be out there in your engagements outside of our organization, really behaving in those types of ways as well. You really want to bring decisions and conversations into you. Value that. Make positive statements. Be enthusiastic about the work and people will really start to share things with you. The collaboration, the deliberation, the planning that goes into that becomes this absolute world-class environment that 20 years ago we probably could have only dreamed of because everyone was relying on the commander to tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. We really have, I think, made a major mental shift in the government and certainly in the Navy and Department of the Navy that, you know, it doesn't matter who's at that table. There is brilliance in every one of us and we need to bring that brilliance out and you'll be shocked at what you learn from your staff. You just sometimes need to stop talking and listen. Right. 
related to that question, I think sometimes we talk about leaders in the context of they were successful or they were failures. I think there's a huge middle ground there, but I'm going to use the word fail, realizing that it could be in that big area in between success and failure. But can you talk about some of the traits of that derail leaders that you've seen that have derailed them or caused them to fail or not be as successful? Was it, we talked about risk aversion before, was that, have you ever seen that play into it? Is it ego? Can you share some insights where a listener can learn from the story and say, wow, I'm always going to be very self-aware of that trait if I ever see myself displaying it? Absolutely. I think the two main ones that come to mind are being genuine and ego. I have seen more destructive behavior as a professional where ego has always been injected into an engagement, a conversation. And the dozens, dozen, they all tie back to really one thing, and that is living your oath. And nowhere in there does it say you're doing this for you. You're doing this for the nation. You're doing this to defend and support the Constitution. And there is rarely a place for ego in anything that we do. Ego costs lives. It costs money. It alienates staffs. It creates toxic environments. And I think that ego has been one of the things that coming into the military, I would have never guessed how important checking your ego, especially as you become a senior leader, because we all understand that we're in these positions, which you could certainly deem as powerful roles. You cannot allow that to influence your decisions that, well, what I know is best. And when I'm at the table, it is my decision to make and your opinions don't matter. Those types of egos are absolutely destructive. And uh, I am always on guard for that in my dealings with senior leaders. We really need to be careful with that because some people don't even know that they're doing it at times. And we need to make sure that we're bold enough to say, I'm not so sure that you handled that appropriately. Being genuine, Dave, is also, I think, something that we, whether in defense or industry, being genuine to your people, being genuine in your dealings across your enterprise is the one thing that is very difficult. You know, you can't connect with everyone necessarily on a personal level, especially in a big organization, but you need to try. And I think that people see that in the way that you interact with individuals. You pick one individual and you have a meaningful conversation with them and you move on. I hate small talk in that regard. I think that it's not genuine in nature. I think if you want to sit and talk to an individual, you give them their full intention. You're not looking at your computer or your phone. You're giving them their 100% undivided attention. And I think that brings out your genuineness that I care about this individual. I care about what they bring to our organization. And I would say ego being the negative aspect of what we just discussed, being genuine is such a positive attribute that leaders, I don't believe, spend enough time developing over time. And sometimes people just have it, but I think you can develop that. I think you need to be a genuine leader. Otherwise, you don't build that trust component that is just waiting for you to build. Right. And I think being self-aware of that, if you are perceived as not being genuine in a communication, those are things that are always changing. And you just said, like, looking at your computer, looking at your phone. And okay, so the smartphone didn't exist 10, 12, Mm -hmm. whatever, however many years ago. And it just wasn't part of our culture. And now people are on these things all the time. I am too. I catch myself all the time. And I'll just share a quick story because this is about being perceived as being genuine. Somebody said to me the other day, every time we're in our staff meeting, you're always on your phone. And what I realized was their perception of me was that I'm always on my phone. 
what I'm actually doing is I run Microsoft to do on my phone. So as they're talking, I'm typing in my to do's. Whereas in the old day, we took a pen and we wrote on a notebook and everybody's like, oh, he's taking notes in his notebook. That was a sign that you were paying attention and that you were taking notes and that you were, you know, hey, I saw him taking notes. It's, you know, he was really lucky. And now you change the mechanism that you're taking notes on and you've completely changed the perception of your genuine nature just because you've changed a mechanism. That was an eye opening conversation with me the other day. And the reason I tell that is because I was being perceived as not being genuine, whereas I always intend to be genuine with somebody. I had no idea that it was being perceived that way. And you're right that those small cues can really be destructive to a leader speaking to a subordinate if they're sending off cues and they're not even self-aware of them. Like I said, it doesn't really play into ego, but it's tangentially related. Mm -hmm. But thank you for sharing that. Next question may be a little harder, not because you can't answer it, but just because it's possible that your answer could drift into the world of classification issues. But I'll ask it and hopefully you can come up with some sort of answer. But what do you see coming in the future that our current leadership talent should be weighing very carefully? Keep that very general. But what can you tell an emerging leader? Like these are some things that you should really be focused on that maybe we've never had to focus on before. You know, we've always been a very technologically savvy organization, but the rapid pace by which technology is being developed, you know, you never know if our academic institutions are keeping pace with that. I feel like industry moves very quickly in many ways on technology. And, you know, again, I grew up with an Atari in my living room. Sure. Atari 2600, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. I was some, you know, master at those games. But there is such advancements taking place. And, you know, you have teenagers building computers and, you know, with hacking skills and that type of work. I think that building that technical workforce is something that we have to constantly be working very, very hard at because everything is moving towards a cyber domain in so many ways and unmanned, you know, all these terms that really didn't exist. And were certainly not areas that we talked a lot about, certainly when I came into the Navy. I would say, Dave, I believe that the concerns that I would have is that technological pace and keeping a pace with our adversaries and ensuring that we're building the workforce, both in the civilian and through our accessions in the military, that we really are training those individuals. If they don't have the training when they come in, we're getting them that training very, very quickly. I think another aspect of this is that we need to teach our leaders to be more strategic and analytical earlier on. I think the values of having been a corpsman was, you know, you're immediately thrust into an analytical environment where you are making decisions based on what you are seeing in your observations of an individual. And you're having to make split second decisions, in some cases for life or death. While not everyone is having to deal with that type of urgency in their decisions, many of us are, and the decisions moving forward will be at that pace. And so being analytical very early on and learning how to be analytical, but to triage very quickly and understanding how you make those analytical trees and decisions as you proceed through your decision space. You know, some of that will be done by computers and AI, that's certain, but we will always have people in the loop in this organization doing the hardest work and making some of the hardest decisions. To be strategic in your decisions, think, use your brain more often than maybe you have in the past. I think that you need to train yourself to be that strategic and analytical leader. It is an incredible challenge. And I will tell you, by the time you get to where I am, if you're not already there because of the volume and pace which things are coming at you, you're not going to have a chance to go and, and get that training. Now is the time for you as a junior leader to teach yourself to learn and to learn quickly and to make meaning out of what you're learning and truly be that analyst. 
I know that there's some new recent guidance that has come from the Commandant on changing and challenging training education. I haven't fully read it. I skimmed it. I saw some things in there I thought were really encouraging, but the reality is that that's a big ship to turn around in the middle of the ocean and maybe it doesn't keep up as fast as much as everybody would like it to. Do you have any suggestions for people on how they can supplement their military training and education, which may not be keeping up as quickly as all the things you just talked about, some things that they should think about doing in their spare time that could help them be more analytical or help them think more strategically? I think to be a lifelong learner, you don't need a military course. You don't need some formal academic course. Let's just face it, the majority of our life will not be in a classroom. So find patterns of behavior as a lifelong learner. You should always be reading a book as a senior leader. If you're not reading a book 100% of the time, then you are not taking advantage of the enormous amount of information that exists to allow you to take in different perspectives, learn about a new technology, learn about a new way of thinking about a problem set. And I would say get outside of your comfort area of just reading military history. I found myself in that trap for a very long time. I think you need to get well outside of that. Get outside the national security perspective and really think about industry and think about education through those lens. You can learn a lot from those that have written on this subject. Stay up with current events. I think that we also don't place enough emphasis on understanding the environment that you're in. It's a very rapidly changing world, and I think that you should be as attentive to the national news as you are to your long-term education of being a prolific reader. So you go down and you speak to ROTC units, then that's initially how we met, as I mentioned in the beginning. You went down and you talked to a group of midshipmen at Old Miss. What kind of questions are those young leaders asking the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Intelligence and Security? They've asked some of the questions that you've asked, interesting enough, very intuitive and insightful. You know, what was it like? The questions start with those words. Mm -hmm. What was it like when you were in your first few years as an officer? And you can see anxiety there. You can see, I really want to get this right. This is what I want to do. And a lot of my answers are this, is that, you know, many of you will go into a pipeline right out of college. You're going to go into a training program. You may not have a division or a branch, you may not have enlisted sailors under you as you're proceeding through this training pipeline, but there are opportunities to lead everywhere. You can lead your colleagues, you can lead up, you can lead down in ways that may not be as obvious to you where you're not the reporting senior for someone. But I would say that don't lose sight that you may spend two to three years in a training pipeline, especially on the advanced systems like aviation or submarines. And you need to find ways to lead in those early years. Be creative about it. And if that means volunteering in your spare time to find opportunities to lead, do it. But leadership opportunities are all around us. And if we take advantage of those, I think you'll be a better leader once you do have those divisions. It absolutely is a development period that I think in some ways we just believe, well, all I have to do here is learn my trade. That is true. You have to learn it, but you've got to find ways to get engaged as a leader and start developing your leader's mind earlier than maybe some would expect. Right. So related to that, but also warning, okay, rightful rudder here. If you look back on your career, which is extensive, right? I mean, like full career in the Navy, enlisted in an officer, now civilian leadership, very successful. Looking back, were there some mistakes in your career that you would take a do-over on? And not necessarily a mistake, but I wish this had worked out differently or I wish I had taken a different decision here. And can you tell that story in the context of something that could be valuable to a young leader right now where they are in their career? 
I believe, Dave, that, and I don't have a lot of do-overs, honestly. I could not have scripted a 36-year career any better than it actually has played out. But I do believe that I wish I would have done more operational work early on. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so incredibly important for young leaders. You know, as a corpsman, I certainly didn't feel as though I was an operator. In most cases, I was teaching, I was instructing. I wish I would have taken the time, and had I known at that time, while I take nothing for the development opportunity, that I received during those early years with what I did do as a career. Having that operational experience early on, I think just brings you a perspective that refines your thinking that most leaders really do need as you start to advance through the ranks. So if I would have had to do a do-over, I think I would have chosen more of a special operations pipeline where I was actually directly in that from a special operations pipeline, a MARSOC or something of that nature. I'm very passionate about that. I love those communities. It's something that I'm very passionate about in terms of special ops and regular warfare. And I think if I had to do over, I would probably spend more time in those communities had I had the choice. Okay. That's exactly the answer I was looking for. Just kind of one of those magic wands. Maybe I should even ask the question, like if there was a magic wand or an alternate universe, I like to say if there's an alternate universe, I'm a Huey pilot. You know, if there was an alternate universe, you would have spent more time in the special operations community. Yes, without a doubt. That's interesting. So I have this theory about Mavericks in the military, right? I mean, we've had a fictional character named Maverick twice now, right? So sometimes we tend to revere them in the movies, right? Top Gun wouldn't be popular if Maverick was a rule follower. The movie just wouldn't exist, right? So in a way, we sort of revere them, but we're also not overly tolerant of them in the military community either. So in your community, in the intelligence community, what does a maverick look like in your community? And did you ever have a maverick in any of your commands, military or civilian? And can you talk about them a little bit as people and, and how you led them? I think there absolutely are mavericks, and I don't mean that in any way as a negative connotation. I mean more brilliant than anything. I think they were thinkers well out in front of the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think some of those brilliant individuals were people who were telegraphing exactly where China is today. And in some cases, we were not listening to them, and we didn't listen to them early enough. And so I think that there are absolutely those mavericks out there, and you need to listen to them. They may seem like they're out of balance with what is the norm in the conversation. And I would say whether intelligence or any other discipline, I think we're playing out right now in areas you know, where we're learning more and more about China, and we're preparing more and more for China. I think there were those that 20 and potentially longer than that, 20 years ago, were telegraphing to us and were not popular in some cases. They almost seemed as if they may have been zealots on this subject, but they were looking at today where we are right now. And I don't think that we all had the tolerance or the interest to hear what they were saying. It maybe was just a stretch too far. Maybe they didn't approach the conversation correctly. They were a little bit too in your face about it. But had we listened to them, where would we be right now as it relates to China? And I'm not saying that we're behind or ahead. I want to pine on that during this discussion. We are an absolute first-rate military, and we always will be. But I think that in the preparation of that, those people that have vision, that are doing things and saying things that are uncommon and unusual, and they kind of get the head tilt from people, I think we need to listen to those people. Again, having the confidence in your own leadership to say, this person brings a different perspective. And I do believe those people are everywhere in the intelligence community. They are absolutely clairvoyant on these issues. And as you see these things start to play out, you realize uh, in some ways how right they were. And I think we should value their insights into this, even when they're not, uh, they're carrying the traditional party line today. 
Right. I'll kind of make up an example that most people will relate to in terms of where you're actually seeing Mavericks right now is, I mean, I couldn't imagine as a captain or a lieutenant saying to my commander, hey, I've got an idea. Let's take a hand grenade and tape it to a drone and we're going to fly it. (laughs) People would be like, you're out of your mind, Armstrong. But we're seeing this sort of creativity maverick on YouTube videos and Twitter videos every single day about what's going on in Ukraine. Right. And I just kind of wonder, are we really encouraging that sort of creativity right now in our Department of Defense to be thinking about? Because, boy, have things changed. It's nuts. And I do think we're going to have to rely on people like that to be creative in thinking. I believe we are, Dave, honestly. Okay, great. Having spent a lot of time supporting counterterrorism over the last 20 years, and I was knee-deep in that endeavor as a program manager and as an executive leading the technology development on some of these capabilities over the years. The ingenuity and the technological advances that occurred during those 20 years were because one Marine or one sailor or an army troop on the ground in Afghanistan said, I can't do it without something like this. And they were making things literally on the battlefield. They were advancing technology and saying, well, if we did this, they get it back to a laboratory somewhere in the States and we refine that and we build it even better. And, you know, that individual probably never got credit for that idea. But requirements coming out of the battlefield are urgent. And that urgency drove such innovation and such ingenuity in in some of those more special operations capabilities that absolutely has relevance today as we're fighting a more near peer fight. We need those people. And I do, as you hope, that we are advancing their ideas as quickly as we possibly can. The brilliance on a lot of our capabilities don't always come out of the laboratories. They don't always come out of an industry partner. It comes out of need on the battlefield. Right. And that need drives the brilliance that comes into that future research and development and design. Yeah. So absolutely. I think that's exactly where I feel that we are exceptional at. We just need to make sure we harness it. Yeah. There was a very open source example of that that just came to mind when you were talking. Have you seen the story about how they developed this AI camera to identify a human being and then they tested it out on Marines to see if they could fool it? I did. And I think to myself, okay, that's three jackass Lance Corporals (laughs) (laughs) out there creatively solving a problem, right? You're like, and they're like, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to put myself in a washing machine box, right? Or I'm going to dress up like a pine tree or whatever it is. That sort of creativity while we laugh at it about these three jackass Lance Corporals out there. That's exactly the kind of creativity we probably need and should be harnessing and definitely encouraging. So you're right. It starts with that Marine or that sailor on the ground or that Army trooper that says, I need this or I want this or, hey, I've got an idea. And sometimes, a lot of times, they come up with some brilliant, brilliant ideas like, hey, I'm going to defeat the AI camera by hiding in a washing machine box. Absolutely. I see it all the time. That's great. We're coming up on the end. So what I really want to wrap up with isn't really a question at all and more of an opportunity to say, you know, I can't predict every single question in the world that would be great to ask the Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Intelligence and Security. What didn't I ask that I should have? What is it that you can wrap up this pod with by sharing your wisdom or your knowledge on something where I didn't ask a good question? I think something that we touched on a little bit, but I think I would really like to anchor at the end on is national security requires a commitment that very few people understand. Here was 
Victor Manila, 19 years old, raising his right hand. He didn't even understand that officers and enlisted were different when he joined the Navy. I didn't have a sense of that. I didn't grow up around it. But the power of one person taking an oath and raising that right hand and taking that step forward, I think tells you everything what you need to know about this country and the opportunities that exist in the U.S. military. That if a young man from Pachuta, Mississippi can grow into, and I do mean grow, I was not prepared for this job even 10 years ago. You can grow. You have to have belief in yourself to take that step forward. It is scary. There were a lot of times that I was scared. I think we all are. But you have to be confident enough in yourself to say, there is something bigger out there for me, and I want to be a part of something that's bigger for me. And when you take that oath, I just ask you to not waste the time that I wasted by not being all in on national security, not being all in on the Navy or the Marine Corps. I think you have an opportunity when you make that commitment and you raise that hand, it is game on. And I would ask you to embrace that mentality the moment you step into the military service. If I had fought earlier on to be a part of this club and wanted to be a part of it and showed my enthusiasm interest in it, I feel like those first years, I would have had even more achievements. I would have done more for my country, more for my Navy. Dave, I think it is central to, I think, a young person's understanding that coming in the military is not just about the GI Bill. It is not about just your civilian education. And I understand those things are important, selling tools and recruitment tools to bring people in. But I would ask you, to seriously think before you raise your right hand. It is a commitment like no other. And that oath must mean something to you. And if it does not mean something to you, then I would rather you not join than to not be all in for your country because you're being paid to be all in on your country. You're being asked to do that once you, once you raise that right hand. It is a commitment that I know not a lot of Americans may be willing to make. But for those that do make it, I ask you to get involved right away. Come into this military on fire about your country and let's do things that are great for this country. That's great. That's the perfect anchor statement for the conclusion of the podcast. That was fantastic. And I agree with you. I think we all have a responsibility to be all in. And I look back on my first four years too, and I think to myself, I could have been more all in. And now at 55 years old, I kind of wish I could do those four years over again and also be 22. So <laughs> all at the same time, it'd be great. But Secretary Manila, thank you so much for coming on Moments in Leadership and sharing your moments in leadership. They're valuable. You're my first civilian leader I've had on, and this has been a fantastic experience to listen to your stories and everything that you've learned and led and everything that you had to share to the young emerging leaders out there, because I think your words of wisdom over the past two hours are going to have an impact on those junior leaders who are listening to this right now and will contribute to them being better members, better leaders, and better role models for everybody out there. So this has been Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy for Intelligence Security, Mr. Victor Manella, the dozen. Sir, thank you so much for spending some time with me this morning and indulging my questions and sharing your wisdom with us. This has been great. Dave, it's a real honor to be with you today. And I just want to thank you for what you're doing with this podcast. It's very important to record these discussions. And I think there is a lot to learn from them. So thank you for what you do. Well, thank you very much. And I'm planning a trip over the building here sometime in the next few months. And I'll definitely make sure I see if you have a second on your schedule for me to come over and shake your hand. So I will make time. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.